You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I don't think I've ever prepared more for a class than today. And I've never felt more ill-equipped to speak uh, to a class uh, than today. And so I would appreciate it if you helped me uh, try to draw some things uh, out. Unless you're just being a smart aleck and make me want to look stupid, then you can go to Mark Genelet's class. He needs it. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of baptism. And we pray uh, that uh, its reality would come alive to us. Uh, that we would know that uh, we are yours and that your spirit dwells within us and that you have given us a name. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're looking at baptism this morning. We're finally to Article 27. The whole point of this series was to try to get some sort of something in book form, and it's not really worked out that way. But I can tell you that the Advent is working on two publications. uh, Well, actually more than two, but two that I'll bring up. Uh, one is, uh, is a little booklet that you can take with you and sit down with a cup of coffee and read on Holy Communion, and the other one is on baptism. And so we're, we're kind of getting all this stuff together now and really thinking through it uh, as, as clergy and, and other people. Uh, it's interesting to me that when you read the early church fathers, they speak a whole lot more about baptism than they do communion. Uh, for the early church, baptism was a really, really big deal. And the reason for that is, is because its understanding changed. So in the Old Testament, uh, there really isn't any baptism, right? There's, there's no evidence of, of anyone being baptized. Uh, you do have incidents where people are told to cleanse themselves in the Jordan River. Uh, there's actually some controversy over whether this happened after John the Baptist or before. Uh, but in some uh, Jewish circles, you would undergo a cleansing baptism if you were a Gentile who was converting to Judaism. Uh, and it was a sort of sign of, of cleansing. And so water uh, in the Old Testament, and even in John's baptism, uh, was a sign of two things. One, it was of cleansing, but two, it was also of repentance. Uh, because anytime water is... Uh, can anyone tell me anything about water in the Old Testament? especially uh, in the narrative of the Old Testament, as well as the Psalms, especially. How is water spoken of? Bad. Always is a bad thing. Never really as a good thing. I mean, I'm sure you've all read a whole lot about the exploits of the Israelite Navy. Um, there wasn't one. There wasn't one. Crazy pe- the Phoenicians did that. Those people did that. If, if it involved water, it was really bad news. And so water is often used as a sign in the Old Testament to talk about judgment. In the Psalms, we hear that, that at times that judgment can feel so overwhelming that it's like being in the water and not having a foothold. Have you ever had that feeling that you're in, at the beach and you put your feet down and you expect something to be there and it's not? And all of a sudden, you get yourself together, but in the moment, you're... <gasps> That's the feeling that water is supposed to give you. That's the way that water is used in uh, the Old Testament. And so you get to John's baptism, 
and people were coming out, and why were they coming out to visit with John? They were being baptized for repentance. Right? They were being baptized for repentance. Now, interestingly enough, uh, well, let's just do it according to the narrative. Jesus steps down into the River Jordan, and what does John say to him? You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus says, no. Uh, in order that all might be fulfilled, I am going to undergo baptism. Why does Jesus do that? One, he does it to identify with us, sinful humanity. Right? That's, he actually enters the muddy waters of sin and is a visual image of him being like us. Uh, but there's also a second thing that never gets preached on. He was identifying with John's ministry. Because throughout the New Testament, you might find it curious that oftentimes you'll hear someone say, well, they had the baptism of John. And there are even parts in the book of Acts where we hear about being baptized in Jesus' name. What does that mean? Baptism was also a way of outwardly identifying with the person you were following. Right, Paul, talks, uh, Paul talks about this when he talks about uh, the Israelites being baptized into Moses. Remember in 1 Corinthians where he talks about being baptized into Moses as the Israelites went through uh, the Red Sea? Uh, they were also baptized into Moses. So when the Bible talks about baptism or talks about water, it talks about it in terms of judgment, it talks about it in terms of repentance, and it talks about it in terms of identification. Now, the other tricky thing is that anytime we see the word baptism in the New Testament, we immediately apply our modern understandings of what we think baptism is onto it. When baptism is not, I'm trying to think of when there's actually an exception to it, except in the book of Acts. But in the Gospels, when baptism is spoken of, it is actually spoken of in terms of judgment especially in, with Jesus. So remember when Jesus says, Can you, are you ready to undergo the baptism that I am about to undergo? What's he talking about? His death. Right? He's talking about his death, and the Greek word actually is also used if you're, if you're a ship on the ocean and the ship has been overwhelmed by a wave or something, you would use the word baptism there. The ship got baptized, meaning that it got overwhelmed uh, by something. So it can also mean to be overwhelmed by something. And all of these things come together to help us understand what baptism means for us as Christians. So that's the background to it. Because that's what we're all leading up to. The other thing that I will say too is that how many people did Jesus baptize? Zero. Were the disciples rebaptized after Pentecost. He breathed his breath. Right, that's a good point. Hold that out, out for a little bit later. Right, but there's no indication that they were. And Paul, when he spoke of baptism, uh, especially his, the function of baptism, remember what he said? I didn't even baptize it. Well, maybe I baptized a couple of you. I mean, that's one of the worst things that happens in ministry is you start baptizing people. And I have a really close friend in this congregation who came up to me, and we were talking about their child who was about four or five. And they said, and, and I just kind of offhand, I said, well, who baptized them? And he said, you did, you idiot. 
so I totally get Paul when he's like, well, maybe I did, bap- maybe I did baptize somebody uh, along the way. But all that to say is that Paul actually didn't see it as an integral part of his ministry. Just didn't. It was definitely integral to John's uh, ministry. But it actually looks like in the early church, the baptism of the early church resembled John's baptism a whole lot more than it resembles the baptism that we practice today. Doesn't mean we're doing it wrong, because we're going to get to that and why we do it the way that we do it. So for the time being, let's look at our article this morning, which inevitably needs some parsing. Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men and women are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, discerned from others that, I'm sorry, uh, regeneration or new birth, whereby is by an instrument that they receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promises of the forgiveness of sin and our adoption to be the sons and daughters of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. All right, we're just going to take it apart as we go. Uh, first of all, baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, uh, whereby we are made different uh, from others, but it's also a sign of regeneration or new birth. One of the things that the Reformers uh, hearken back to is that where circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, what is the sign of the New Covenant in the New Testament? Baptism, right? And in fact, even in, in, the, Old, in the Old Testament, uh, you could have somebody who was circumcised of the flesh, but not circumcised of the heart. But outwardly speaking, at least amongst the men of the Israelites, they were discerned as different uh, because of uh, their circumcision. And so it is, a, it is not only, which means it is a sign, a profession, It is a mark of difference, but it is also a sign of something much deeper than that, of regeneration or new birth, right? It points to something rather than I'm just different. It actually points to the act of God uh, in the life of the believer. So uh, that is one of the things that gets really kind of funny about the sacraments. One, we need to remember that sacraments are... Not Godward, but they're manward, meaning they're about what God has done for us rather than what we're doing for God. And uh, that often gets confused, and if you get that confused, you're going to have a bad view or an umbilical view of, of the sacraments. And so here the Reformers are saying, in the same way that circumcision in the Old Testament uh, marked out people as different and pointed to their special covenant relationship with God, so baptism in the church, marks us out, makes us different, uh, but is also a sign of regeneration or new birth. If you want to use a more modern word that still has a lot of weight attached to it, though, conversion. It points to conversion. Now, there's also a word here that this is a little footnote, but is worth stopping on. The word christened. We use the word christen and baptism interchangeably when they're not interchangeable words. To christen something means to name something, right? So you christen a ship, right? 
and then you break champagne over it. You're not going to break champagne over your children's heads. Uh, but there is a part of the service where the, the, the person baptizing says what? Name this child. And you name the child, and then you baptize them. So christening is a part of the baptism service. In fact, in England, there's an infamous case uh, about this, where in England, and this is still the case, in England, your legal name uh, is determined, can be determined by one of two things, a birth certificate or a baptism certificate, because it's an established church in England. Well, back in the day, in the 1900s, there were no birth certificates. So it was really up to the church in a certificate of baptism to serve as a birth certificate. And that's what told you what your name was. Well, the problem with this is there was a, a rector who, when you got to the part of the service where you said, name this child, you could have said, Mary Cabell. And then he would just baptize the child, naming them whatever he thought their name should be. So you'd say Mary Cabell, and he'd say, uh, Hildegard Drusilla. I baptize you, and that's the name on the, on the baptism certificate. Uh, and so it was a big legal kerfuffle because legally this girl's name is Hildegard Drusilla. Um, uh, so, uh, so christening is different uh, than baptism, but it is a significant, uh, a significant uh, part uh, of, of the service. And so it's not only a sign of difference, but it's a sign uh, to us of uh, regeneration or new birth. We're going to get into all the sticky stuff in a minute. Whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The key word here is rightly. Because it's very funny, when you read the service, even in the 1979 prayer book, it says, we baptize them who come to him in faith. Well, if that's true, why do we baptize children? Now, there is some New Testament evidence for the baptism of children. It's not explicit, but it's still there. So, for instance, when uh, in Acts uh, 17, you have the Philippian jailer, and remember, uh, the Philippian jailer uh, goes home, uh, treats uh, the wounds of uh, Paul and uh, and his companion, and then both he and his whole household was baptized, the whole household. And it would be a real stretch to say every time that that's mentioned that there weren't children in the household. So there is some biblical evidence. Also, uh, Jesus' own disposition toward children in the Gospels. Mark's is a little bit more explicit. Uh, People were bringing children to Jesus uh, to bless, and the disciples got very mad. And what did Jesus say to them? All right, don't prevent the children from coming to me, for to such belongs the, ch- the kingdom of, of heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you are to enter the kingdom, you must enter it like one of these. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Reformers picked up on it immediately, uh, as well as the early church. This is, not, this is not just like in the 16th century. Someone said, oh, we've got a new idea. In fact, one of the cries of the Reformers was ad fontis, going back to the sources. So let's stop here and talk about infant baptism for a minute because that certainly is an issue that people struggle with. One, there's New Testament evidence, but two, simply the theology behind it are Jesus' own words. So what is it about children that we must emulate to enter into the kingdom of God, and how is that represented in baptism? Well, if you've 
ever been around me when I've baptized a child, you'll, you've heard this before, but it's well worth repeating. Well, in fact, there is something about children that Jesus is getting at. Um, before I had children, I thought that what Jesus meant was, you know, that you know, where kids are kind of innocent and sweet, that's what he meant, kind of a blank slate. Um, and then I had kids and realized that's not true. Uh, and that can't, that can't be the case. So what does he mean? Because, and if that were the case, I wouldn't have to put hooks on my cabinets to keep them from eating Ajax. Uh, Mary Cavill one time, those little plunkets she put in the garbage disposal to make it smell like lemons, she had gotten into a pack of those and probably gotten three or four deep before she realized this is gross. So I called Poison Control, and I said, this is what's happened. And they said, was the child supervised at the time of the ingestion? I'm like, yes, she seemed to like it. Uh, and I realized, they're shaking me down. Like, I'm waiting for the sirens to come and social services to haul the children away from me. So I hung up immediately. I, I did it. Well, first I said, do you know who I am? And they said, no. And I hung out real quick. But, and figured uh, we'd know in a couple hours whether it was bad or not. Uh, but, and, of course, she's fine. Uh, but, uh, so it's not being born innocent, but what is it about children that Jesus is getting at, and how is it represented in baptism? Well, the first is that children, uh, when, and this just happened, I, I was at the North American Dean's Conference in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was coming back, I got in yesterday afternoon, and I walked in the door, and the girls asked me, as soon as I walked in, what did they ask me? What did you bring me? And I told them, look, I was in Cincinnati. There's nothing to bring you. Um, um, uh, Chile, maybe? I don't know. Uh, but there's, not, there's really not much. Uh, Cincinnati's a great town, but nothing to bring you. And, um, and that might at first blush seem like a very selfish thing to ask. But why do children ask that? Because there's an expectation that their parents will give them good things. Remember, Jesus said that too. Which among you who ask their parent, their father, for an egg, will the father give them a serpent? Not at all. So there's an actual expectation for good gifts in the same way uh, that we ought to have an expectation that God actually does love us and will bless us with things. Another thing about children is that they are able to receive a gift for what it is. If you have children that uh, they can kind of think for themselves and uh, whatever it is, uh, when they push back, uh, we, we go out to dinner all the time, and I have yet to see one of them push back from the table after a great meal and look at Lauren and I and say, Mom, Dad, the next one's on me. There's no sense that they have that they need to give back anything or to keep it even like we do when we go out to lunch with our friends and we're trying to think who paid last time and I need to pick it up this time or I need to keep things even. There's none of that at all. And it gets really hard when you get older as a child because remember the first time, and normally it's in your 30s, when you go out to dinner with your parents and normally it's dad that says, yeah, we'll split the bill. And you're like, wait a minute. You're still my, you, should, you, pick, you should pick that up even though I have a job. This is awkward. And I thought you were a good parent. So, but as kids, uh, they expect good gifts and they're able to receive gifts without feeling like they need to give anything back. And those are things that are lost in adulthood and that our culture kind of squeezes out of us. The other thing about it is, and this is vividly represented at the font, I have never had a, an infant child come to the font willingly. Or of its own volition, I should say. 
Right, they, you know, the eight-month-old has never sprung up and you know, started waltzing down the aisle and say, baptize me. Right, it's not happened. They've either come like lambs before the shears uh, or I don't want to do this at all. Uh, just sort of kicking and screaming. And, and as I've told the story before, we had a, a youth minister in Buford who used to play rugby in South Africa. He's this huge, hulking man named Craig. And um, he did a foolish thing that some of y'all have done. And that is they waited until the baby was about three years old to baptize them. And at that point, the baby had Craig's genes. Uh, and so the child was too big to hold and not quite big enough to lean over the font. And so we decided Craig would hold the child while I baptized her. And um, we got to the part in the service where you get to the renunciations, do you reject Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And as soon as I asked it, that child reached up, grabbed her father's neck, and squeezed so hard that a little trickle of blood started to come down his neck, and Craig said with all his might, I renounce them! Uh, and whether she liked it or not, and whether your children like it or not, guess what's going to happen to them? They're getting baptized. Whether they like it or not, uh, they're getting baptized. And it shows us the divine initiative of God in, in the relationship, and the whole idea of salvation is that God claims us and not the other way around. And so that's why, at the very, let's just skip to the bottom, the baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ, right? It's in keeping with the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself. So that is, uh, those are just a couple, there are more reasons why we baptize children, uh, but those are just uh, a couple reasons because they model for us what salvation looks like. Okay, and that those who receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. So here's the thing, back to our original question. Why do we baptize infants if, if we only baptize those who come to Christ in faith? And I've said that, but here uh, the Reformers talk about reception, which we've talked about concerning Holy Communion, and we've talked about concerning... Um, the sacraments in general. Who are those that rightly receive the sacrament of baptism or even the sacrament of Holy Communion? This is the can of worms. Let's open it. Christians. But how can you say that that baby is a Christian? Here's the tricky part. Because the Reformers, and when you read the articles, the doctrine of election runs through the whole thing. Not just that, but the old prayer book uses really strong language. Does anybody remember what the minister said after baptizing the child? What the first couple words were? No, the old one, even before that. It's even stronger than that. Seeing now that this child is regenerate. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's because the prayer book assumes that God answers prayers. And as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that children born into Christian households are holy, whatever that means, so it's not simply an assumption that those children in Christian families that we bring to the font are actually believers. 
and that God will bring that to fruition in their lives by his initiative. And so when we use vivid language like that, it's actually a prayer saying, God, make it so. God, make it so. And there's all kinds of uh, biblical evidence for this. And some of our collects, um, have you ever, when we've prayed a collect on a Sunday, have you ever noticed sometimes that, that what it says is not necessarily true about you? Like, you know, I'm trying to think of, of some examples uh, of it, but every once in a while it'll say something like, Oh God, uh, my heart desires only holiness and that I would be without sin. And I'm like, that's mostly true. Right? But there are some times that it's not. But in the same way with baptism, there are things that we pray that may not necessarily be true at the time, uh, but we're praying as if they are. We're praying that God would bring it unto uh, fruition. And so those that are rightly, uh, that receive baptism rightly, are grafted into the church. Now the articles, and I think the Bible points to this as well, talk about the, two, the church in two different ways. One, the visible church, and then two, the invisible church. Now I'm going to get into what is, we already talked about what is the church. Uh, a little bit, but we didn't really get into the visible and the invisible church. The visible church is just what it is. It's the people who claim the name Christian and all come together uh, and manifest itself, say, on Sunday mornings. Right? That's the visible church. But then there's also the invisible church because, of course, there are people out there that claim the name Christian who have even been baptized that are not grafted into the invisible church of God. Now that sounds really extreme, but I'll give you some examples that you'll latch onto in a heartbeat. So for instance, Hitler was baptized, Stalin was baptized. They were at least grafted into the visible into the visible church. Now this is not at this point everyone's like, "Well, how do I know if I'm in the invisible?" If you're asking that question, you're in, right? You're you're in. That means that God is working in your life. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're sitting there not caring one bit at all, uh, you might want to question whether or not uh, you have been rightly grafted uh, into uh, the church. But the other thing, too, is it's not about your own disposition. It's not how you're feeling. It's not really up to you. Uh, it's what God has uh, done for you uh, in, in Christ. And so that's why, um, even so far back as St. Jerome, uh, St. Jerome said, They that receive not baptism with perfect faith receive the water, but the Holy Ghost they receive not. And um, both Cranmer and others have echoed that through the year. Uh, Hooker, um, for those of you who don't like the Puritans, Hooker was really hard against the Puritans. But even Hooker said that um, uh, not all those who are washed with the water are washed with the Holy Spirit. That's just the issue. Archbishop Usher, a former Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 17th century said, or I'm sorry, late, seven, late 16th century, said, as baptism administered to those of years is not effectual unless they believe. So we can make no comfortable use of our baptism administered in our infancy until we believe. Because that's the thing. There's actually no difference between whether you were baptized as an infant or whether you were baptized as an adult. And we always try to make those two different. But in fact, they're one and the same. All the promises of grace were in my baptism estated upon me and sealed up unto me on God's part. But then I come to have the profit and benefit of them when I come to understand what grant God 
in baptism hath sealed unto me and actually to lay hold on it by faith. So what is Usher and others saying? It's the modern phenomenon. How many of us have opened up a desk drawer or a side bureau table and found an uncashed check? Have y'all never done that? Y'all don't do checks anymore? Well, I mean, that's the problem is that I find them all the time in our, uh, in our house uh, for one reason or another. Uh, these checks that were written out to us that were never cashed. Now, does the check belong to me? Yeah, it has my name on it. Let's say the check's for $100. That $100 is mine, isn't it? It's been given to me. It's been sealed. It's been estated upon me. No one can really take it away. No one else can cash the check but me. But what? I've got to cash it. I've got to claim it. I have to lay hold of it uh, myself and actually to enjoy the benefits that were signed and sealed upon me in uh, the writing of my birthday check, inevitably from my grandmother. And so that's what is meant uh, by, by that. Um, the promises of the forgiveness of sin and of our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed, faith is confirmed, and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God, which means that baptism is not necessarily a one-and-done thing. It is one-and-done when it comes to being a part of, of the church or the covenant communi- community or the visible church. That's at your, your full member. There's no doubt about that. But that's why we have the office of confirmation. Right? People are really having a hard time trying to figure out what confirmation is all about. And in our tradition, baptism has almost been reduced to a Gentile bris and confirmation, a Gentile bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. That it's sort of you hit this magical age of 13 and then you become, uh, you're confirmed. Uh, But in fact, uh, confirmation is the point at which the children who have been baptized in their infancy, when their parents and godparents have taken vows on their behalf, are to appropriate them for themselves. They're to take ownership Uh, of their faith. They're to confirm what was promised to them uh, in their baptism. And so that's why that's such an important thing. And for the longest time, it meant that you only took communion if you were confirmed. Was it because you were confirmed? No. It was because you had publicly declared your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before the confirmation. So confirmation is not the bishop laying his hands on you and praying for you. Confirmation is actually you getting up and confirming your faith. And as a response to that, the bishop representing the church prays for you. Sort of says, welcome to the professed believers in Jesus Christ, uh, the family of God. And so uh, that's why confirmation uh, exists. Now, there are many, many people in the church who would like to do away with confirmation and see it as, uh, as unnecessary because they really do uh, believe that baptism is not only a sign of regeneration or new birth, but it actually affects regeneration and new birth. That by being baptized, you are saved. Now, I think they're being disingenuous or just cruel, uh, because if that's the case, you should try to baptize everyone whether they like it or not. In fact, there was a case a couple years ago where they found out that we used to, I don't know if we still do, someone can tell me this. We used to have an arrangement with the Philippines that if you were Filipino and served in a branch of the armed forces, 
for a certain number of years, you could get your American citizenship because of the special relationship that we had with them. And so it seemed that most of them went into the Navy. And almost all of the women went into Navy medicine. And so they actually had a little bit of a kerfuffle at Navy Hospital in San Diego because nearly all the nurses were Filipino and all of them were baptizing every single child born at Navy Hospital in San Diego. Why? Because they actually were willing to act on what they believed. They actually believed that baptism saved the child, and so it would be cruel and disingenuous for them not to baptize uh, the children. So at least they were being uh, consistent uh, with that. Uh, the other thing that we have uh, with that is ambiguity in in language. And uh, one of the things that I note, and I'm trying to get to the bottom of, is where would Cranmer had gone had Mary not have burned him? Of course, Cranmer was burned at the stake. And there was a trajectory that he was on. The first prayer book came out in 1549. The second one came out in 1552. So for you as Episcopalians who get really sideways about prayer book revision, can you imagine if we had one and then three years later we introduced a new one? Well, that was happening. And Cranmer was working toward the next one. In fact, if Cranmer came back, I think he would be absolutely astonished that we still use much of his same services. Now, the changes that we've made at the Advent have actually gone back in time, so he probably would have something to say about that. But one of the things, too, that Cranmer went to great lengths about and why there was such a quick change after 1549 is Cranmer had a nemesis, the Bishop of Winchester named Stephen Gardner, who was not a very nice man and actually went out with a wimple. Uh, but Stephen Gardner uh, was the arch rival of Cranmer and on several occasions tried to get him killed under Henry VIII. It didn't work, obviously. Uh, but when Cranmer came out with 1549, uh, Gardner wrote a commentary on it and said, yeah, this is great. I can work with it. Which, of course, Cranmer responded with, wait a minute, we've done something wrong. Because if Gardner's on board with it, we've made a mistake. And so he got to work on 1552 pretty quickly. And so one of the things that Cranmer was very uh, intent about was making sure that the language was clear. Now, the way that it sorted itself out in Anglicanism is that if it seems ambiguous in a service, you look at the articles. The articles interpret the prayer book. The prayer book don't interpret the articles. And then there's also the biblical arguments that ought to be first and foremost in those conversations. And there was a great case in the late 1800s. There was a man named Gorham who was down in Exeter, which is getting down toward um, Plymouth. Uh, it is Plymouth, actually. That's Exeter. Uh, Plymouth, England. And uh, Gorham was the rector of a parish, and he openly preached against baptismal regeneration. That is, that baptism saved. Now, he was only doing what he thought the prayer book said and what the article said and what the Bible said, but his bishop thought otherwise. So Bishop Philpotts brought him before a church trial. And the Church of England, because it's the established church, it actually went to what the English equivalent of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom is. And in that, the Supreme Court, the state court, said, no, the Church of England doesn't believe in baptismal regeneration. Bishop Philpotts is wrong. Um, but you can understand why, with certain language, Bishop Philpotts would think and have a leg to stand on as to why baptism is regenerative. It actually affects the thing that it signs. So one of the things that we've done is we've gone back to the old language after the baptism of uh, 
name, I sign you with the sign of the cross, that you were to be true to Christ crucified, which is really beautiful and lovely language. That was a, just poetically, it was a shame that we lost. Uh, but it used to be, as Jane said, it used to be, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Well, what we were encountering uh, were people who um, really thought that that was literally true, that because uh, they had been baptized, that they were saved based on that language. In fact, I had people who would get very upset with me that I didn't use that language because they believed it was a sort of incantation over the child and that somehow the baptism was ineffective if I didn't use those words. To which I said, well, the Anglicans for 500 years were in a real pickle, but we never used the words. Uh, and what about those poor children? And so um, what we see, and you can, um, you can go to Ephesians, because that's where it comes from. So if there's, it's a biblical verse, and, uh, and I am, um, and I am uh, all uh, for it. Uh, but it is from uh, Ephesians 1.13. In him, uh, you also, when you heard the word of truth, that's in him, Jesus, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that's the verse that they're basing it on. But Paul is actually saying one thing in the baptism service is saying something totally different. It's actually misappropriating Paul. Because Paul says, in Jesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you put your trust in him, then you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's when, when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that's when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not ministering to children uh, who, are in, uh, who are being baptized, uh, most especially the children of believers. Many of us that were, um, that were converted later on in life um, uh, can look back on our lives and see God's hand in it. We can see the Holy Spirit coming after us and pursuing us. Uh, but, that, but doing away with that language, and someone said, well, I really like that language because it gives me comfort that in their baptism, they be, they're marked as Jesus forever. And I said, well, that's the very reason why we stopped doing it. Uh, because what we want you to put your faith and trust in is that this child has been baptized, but it's not the water that has saved them or is going to save them, but is Jesus. Right? So it would be totally different. Actually, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit uh, in faith in Jesus and marked as Christ's own forever. Uh, not sealed in the act of. Let me give you a, an example of this. So legally speaking, let's say that you go through the whole liturgy of marriage. You go through the whole liturgy of marriage. This was actually another case in England. And I don't know, you lawyers will have to tell me if this would hold, hold up in, um, in America. A couple got married. They went, to the whole, they went through the whole liturgical service. They exchanged rings. And then on their way to their honeymoon, they got into a car crash, and the husband died. Tragic. But the question became, are they married? Because, that's right. So on the one hand, they signed the parish register, which is like signing a marriage license in America. They had gone through the liturgical process, 
But in England, the marriage had to be consummated in order for it to actually be a marriage. So the court ruled that the woman was actually had never been married at all. Now, we can argue the legal fine points, but I think it's a good example of, of, of how baptism works, that you can go through the whole liturgical process, have the water poured on you, the whole kit and caboodle, and yet still not be a Christian. And this is why, going back to where we started, that there are those who were in Israel who were circumcised to the flesh, but not circumcised to the heart. And that was the great problem that Israel fell into at the time of Jesus when they kept saying, well, I know I'm in good with God because we have Abraham as our father, because I'm a child of Abraham. And that isn't going to float. Right? That, that's not why. In fact, Jesus could make rocks into children uh, of Abraham. Do not claim that you have Abraham as your father, uh, but in fact, God doesn't have grandchildren. God has children and that you're called on to repent and to lay hold of your faith uh, in, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stop it there uh, now that I've opened up about 20 cans of worms and not even gotten to most of my notes, but uh, go ahead and open it up for questions. Um, I was not raised in the Episcopal Church, so I'm just, you know, the last few years familiar with the, the articles. How does this article differ from the very first article, uh, first prayer book, no, no, this one stayed pretty much the same. Yeah, it stayed, it stayed pretty much the same. Now, it, it's, it gets tricky in, um, well, I'm just going to leave it at that. I was going to talk about the legal structures of England, um, but, uh, but it stayed pretty much the same. So the, understa- the understanding of baptism for the longest time, when you were coming out of the Reformation, you still had a number of people who were Roman Catholic holdovers, understandably so, that were within the life of the Church of England. And so, but by the, by the, even, and then you had a couple people in the 17th century that kind of quietly believed in baptismal regeneration, but, but weren't open about it. And it wasn't until the latter part of the 19th century that you actually had a sizable group of people in Anglicanism who believed in baptismal regeneration. So at one point in time, historically, it was the exception. And now I would say in the Episcopal Church, uh, especially in North America, in North American Anglicanism, it's just assumed that, that baptism saves. There's, there's an assumption of, uh, of that. Uh, and there are a number of things pastorally that have been lost in, in baptism. Um, and, um, and so, and we're working on that uh, here at the Advent. So, for instance, meeting with the parents, asking them about their faith, um, you know, if you're going to be baptized, you're baptized into a congregation as well. Um, and so, in fact, we've changed our policy that we only do private baptisms in case of it has to be something pressing uh, because they're joining a congregation. And if you're coming from outside of town, but you grew up at the Advent and you want to have your child baptized there, we actually ask that you get a letter from your pastor saying that you belong and you're regular at, at the church that you're going back to. Uh, because it's not, the rite of baptism is not meant to stand alone and be a barren sign, because that's all it is then. Uh, and it kind of makes, a, well, it doesn't kind of, it makes a mockery of the sacrament. David. Andrew, this has been very helpful, and it has uh, caused me to change my opinion about infant baptism. So thank you for the insights. Thank you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the... Uh, book by J.C. Ryle, 
knots untied. Yeah. It does an excellent job on many of these types of issues. Yeah. And when it comes to baptism, he says in so many words, look, I know that it says what it says, but it doesn't mean what it right. says. And for that reason, I have heard pastors administering baptism to children, a child or baby, uh, not only explain what it is, but they'll also uh, explain what it is not. Yeah. Is there any limitation within the uh, Anglican or Episcopal to do it or not yeah, do that? I'm glad, I'm glad that you say that because I'm under conviction about that. I am really good at saying what things are not, and I need to do a much better job of saying what things are. So I actually would say that, that I need to do a better job of articulating uh, what, what it's for. And um, I mean, baptism is not, as the article says and as the Bible, I think, preaches, and teaches that, that it's not simply uh, a mere sign, uh, but is, signifies something much more than just joining the visible church. And it is a great travesty and, um, and sadness when all the promises of God have been given to a child in baptism and they never cash the check. And so to say that it's just... To say that it's just, that's God speaking, be quiet. Um, to say that it's just, it's, just infant ba- it's just infant dedication with water would be a lie. Uh, uh, that would not be true uh, either. Any other questions? So it's impossible to fall out of the fold. And something that you might notice that I do, and I'm not doing it to be cute or flippant, but when the children are sitting down front, and even adults, I'll splash them with the water from baptism, and I'll admonish them to remember their baptism 
uh, to remember what it means. So in, and Luther was very good about this. So in those moments when you are beginning to wonder, am I really a child of God? Luther would say, remember your baptism. But what he meant by that is, is that remember that you belong to Christ. That it's nothing you did, that you've been baptized by the Spirit in him. And so remember that. That it's not, if God has taken the initiative and there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, there's nothing you can do to unearn it. And so reminding uh, the children of their baptism and reminding us of our baptism reminds us who we are in Christ and is, uh, is more than just a rite of passage, uh, but represents uh, our salvation. I mean, so the whole idea of baptism is being dying with Christ, being buried with Christ, and being raised with Christ. That's what baptism is supposed to represent. It's very interesting the language that the New Testament uses. It never says that they were saved by baptism, but even like it says in 1 Peter, if someone wants to bring up 1 Peter 3, you were saved through baptism. That's right. You were saved through it, not by it. In the same way that the Israelites, when they crossed through the Red Sea and got to the other side, they were saved through it. They came through it. They came through the death and came out on the other side alive. So that's what it's mean by saved through baptism. So we look back that we've been, remember your baptism, that because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've been crucified with him, that you've been buried with him, and that you've been raised with him, and nothing in this world can take that away from you. Full stop. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.